Dr. Robin Kelly, the Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. He's the author of several books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, Your Mama's Dysfunctional Fighting the Culture Wars in Urban America, and Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. His essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Crisis, Boston Review, The Nation, The Voice, Literary Supplement New Labor Forum, Journal of Palestinian Studies, Counterpunch, Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society, and a lot more. Robin Kelly not only has a, a reputation throughout California and the nation, but is also internationally known. Dr. Robin Kelly, thanks for taking time from your really busy schedule to join us as we mark Juneteenth for our Juneteenth special. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. It's always great to be with you, especially with Danny Glover and Barbara Arnwine. <laughs> yes, what a treat. I just love to love today's show. Robin, what I'd like to do just to set things up and to give our listeners some more background, um, I'd like to play a clip from the Washington Post about what Juneteenth tells us about the value of black life. Naomi Carrier celebrates Juneteenth because it's the day her great-great-grandmother, along with 300,000 other enslaved black Texans, learned that they were free. The day of the Jubilee, they speak of. The day we're going to cross back over into Jordan. The day we're going to fly away. So they were anticipating freedom. And they knew that a logical outcome of the Civil War could mean freedom for African-American slaves, whether it happened or not. Juneteenth has taken on this kind of symbolic reverence as the day that the Emancipation Proclamation finally got to Texas. But in reality, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't actually end slavery, and neither did the Civil War. People did. Juneteenth happened two years after the Emancipation Proclamation that was scheduled to begin on January 1st, 1863 by Abraham Lincoln. But in Texas, the enslaved people were not allowed to practice their freedom until June 19th, 1865. And people will say, well, maybe they didn't get the, the news in time. Well, why were they late? They were late specifically because the planters needed to get another crop in the ground, and they did do that by Juneteenth. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had already been assassinated by the time the slaves in Texas were freed. Yes, people in Texas knew about the Emancipation Proclamation, they just didn't enact it. They considered themselves a confederacy. The Emancipation Proclamation was more about war strategy than about freeing the slaves. It was written during the Civil War and only applied to a subset of states that seceded from the Union. But the mere mention of emancipation coupled with the invitation to join the army motivated almost 200,000 black soldiers to join the Union and fight for their freedom on behalf of the Union, which forced equality to the forefront of the conversation. The day that General Gordon Granger came and delivered the announcement, and he didn't read the Emancipation Proclamation, he only read General Order Number 3. General Order Number 3 doesn't have any caveats or clauses like the Emancipation Proclamation. And it doesn't just say that the enslaved people here are free. It says that they're equal. What other document in American history discusses or references freed slaves as equal to their slave owners? You'd have to look long and hard to find it. And it's applicable on June 19, 1865. It's applicable on June 19, 2020. It's the same message. When black people were freed, 
They got nothing. You got no wagon, no horses, no land, no tools, and most of all, no education. You're looking at a confederacy that doesn't want to yield and accept defeat. The military, who doesn't really have any real affinity for black people, we're just ex-military. And then you're looking at the freed people who have to protect themselves from the awful violence that was prevalent against them at the end of the Civil War. In some ways, it might have been just like running away on the Underground Railroad. Just like running away on the Underground Railroad. So, Dr. Robin Kelly, we do want to hear your thoughts on this Juneteenth, but we're also going to depend on you to give us a little historic context here. Your thoughts on why the Emancipation, why Lincoln signed the Emancipation uh, Proclamation in the first place. And uh, also, just, we still fighting to be free, but a lot of people also assume that it was Lincoln who freed the slaves as opposed to black folks freeing themselves. Uh, Robin Kelly. Exactly. No, no, exactly. In fact, one of the things that, that disturbs me is this idea that, um, that General Granger brought the news of freedom to black people. Uh, for one thing, you know, he was in Galveston and, and you know, read this order number three, um, but it's not as if black people in Texas didn't know about the Emancipation Proclamation. But let's, let's step back. I mean, what was it? It was a war document. It wasn't a, it, it, what, what Lincoln basically did was um, proclaim free enslaved people in the rebellious states, which means that he had no jurisdiction over those states. So it's not as if Confederate plantation owners would just free enslaved people. And that's why the only, this is why the only way that um, slavery ended in the South was through the work of enslaved people themselves. When Union forces came within the vicinity of plantations, black people knowing that they were free, they knew they were free from the moment they were born. They knew they were just in chains. They fled. They fled the Union lines. Um, what makes Texas different is that there wasn't much of a war fought in Texas. Uh, much of the battle was east of the Mississippi, so the idea that enslaved people would be able to run away to Union lines, and there are no Union lines, there are few, um, made it almost impossible. And so it's like people biding their time, engaging in forms of sabotage, and some people were running away, in fact. Uh, but one other thing I should mention about Texas is that Texas then became the place where plantation owners were fleeing across the Mississippi, uh, taking their slaves with them into Texas as kind of like the last holdover uh, of to, to, to maintain slavery as the war was going on and as the Confederacy was being defeated. But the most important thing, and W.B. Du Bois says this in Black Reconstruction, he says, you know, it's a general strike that led to the collapse of the Confederacy. The general strike is half a million to say people leaving the plantation, leaving the place of work, undermining the, the whole Confederate economy and the war economy. Uh, and that is why the Union won the, the war. But, the, but again, the, the, the federal government may have won the war against the Confederacy in the short term, but in the long term, as we know, the South won the Civil War by uh, maintaining and implementing Jim Crow and denying the right to vote and all that stuff. 
But I just, I just want to say that because I'm really disturbed by how this narrative of Juneteenth, as if somehow people are just waiting uh, from on high to be free. And that's not the spirit of Juneteenth, nor is it what Juneteenth represents when it was called Jubilee Day. Absolutely. And and of course, you know, all of the slave rebellions that are not necessarily taught in the schools or barely get a mention, including the New York slave revolt, revolt in, in 1712, the German coast uprising in Louisiana in 1811, that's said to be one of the largest uprising, um, which was inspired by the Haitian Revolution in 1804, Nat Turner's slave rebellion in Virginia, 1831, among so many others. So in to just the general resistance that you have mentioned, these major uprisings. Now, um, Robin Kelly, just fast forward a little bit then to the post-slavery uh, era. You heard the uh, the woman say, well, we didn't get anything. They didn't give us, you know, we, we left the plantations basically with nothing. So talk about this first reconstruction period, because Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, joint coordinators of the Poor People's Campaign, they're now calling for a third reconstruction. And we're finding that a lot of folks are saying, okay, huh, the third? What was the first? Can you just fill us in a little bit about that and what happened in terms of how it was destroyed? Right. So um, the first reconstruction, um, black people almost got something, (laughs) almost, and then it was rolled back. So basically what happened with the collapse of the Confederacy, they had to rebuild the nation. And... Uh, at first, under Andrew Johnson, he's like, there's no possible way we're going to redistribute land to formerly enslaved people. There's no possible way we're going to even allow black people to vote. And so there was a great deal of opposition, and they were trying to get the old Confederacy back into power. But that failed. It was kind of overthrown by uh, radical Republicans and by black people themselves. And in the process, the short version of the story is that you have what's called um, – Congressional, basically congressional reconstruction. That is to say that um, uh, that people who waged war against the United States did not immediately have the right to vote. Uh, the passage, ultimately, of the 15th Amendment and certainly the 14th Amendment giving citizenship rights to black people allowed for the first time black participation in electoral politics. Black people ran for office. They ran legislatures in places like South Carolina and Mississippi. They passed some of the most progressive laws uh, in U.S. history, laws that would abolish whipping, laws that would lead to, that would demand land reform, laws that created free universal public education for all people, not just black people. You know, laws to basically end forms of, of exploitation to overturn what was called the black codes, the codes that limited black mobility, black rights, uh, and also overturn what was called the apprenticeship laws, which were laws, again, part of the black codes that allowed plantation owners to keep uh, people under 21 years old on the plantation if no one could claim them. So it's a continuation of slavery. But all that was overthrown in part with the support, support of the federal government. Um, and that was the end of Reconstruction. But it didn't quite end entirely because it continued to be these interracial, multiracial coalitions, parties like the Greenback Labor Party, the, um, the Knights of Labor, uh, the Populist Movement. A lot of them continued to run for office and fight 
fight to maintain some semblance of rights for black people. So it wasn't really until the 1890s into uh, the 1900s that you actually see the disfranchisement of black people, the denial of the vote in mass numbers, which is exactly what we're seeing now. But I just, before we go, I just want to say one thing about what the day of, what Jubilee actually meant, because it's a reminder of what the vision of enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, was for the nation. Jubilee refers to the biblical um, uh, Jubilee. That is, in Leviticus chapter 25, there was a promise of the return of, of the land to the divine authority. That is, you basically um, give the land back, right? It, it says the, the, land, the land is mine, God says the land is mine, and you are coming into it as aliens and settlements. The second element was the cancellation of all debt, and the third is the freeing of all, freeing of all slaves. And so if these are the three pillars, of a kind of reconstruction vision coming out of Texas, for example, coming out of and Jubilee, I should say, it's not Texas limited. Jubilee is the whole idea of emancipation. Then those three pillars were the pillars that people envision a new future, ending debt, redistribution of land, a new commons, and no slavery whatsoever. And that vision is the vision that Juneteenth, you know, to this day, should be driven by, not uh, that Juneteenth is a day of just uh, sales, you know, that you get Juneteenth sales and make money that way, or, you know, but yeah. it really it should be a way of, of rebuilding the nation and actually fulfilling the dream of reconstruction, the first reconstruction, that Reverend Barber and Lucille Harris and the whole movement is trying to fulfill. That is, you create a new commons, you cancel all debt, you end poverty, and you end all forms of unfreedom and extend the right of, of civil rights and human rights to all people. And that's basically what, what they're calling for, what we've been fighting for since, since 1619. <laughs> right. I'm so glad you pointed that out because earlier um, with um, when Danny Glover was on, uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, how the attempts to whitewash Martin Luther King after, you know, the King holiday that was so hard fought for. Now that we have a Juneteenth holiday, we already know the efforts to to whitewash slavery. I mean, if you know, the goal of these people, right, uh, Robin Kelly, I mean, with the attacks of the 1619 project, with Texas wanting to, you know, rewrite uh, the textbooks, and now Abbott, governor, the governor of Texas, talking about he's building a wall between with Mexico when Texas was Mexico, if you know what I mean, was taken. Uh, the, I mean, the goal of these people. So uh, you're absolutely right to highlight. We all have to remember what Juneteenth is really about and should be about and not allow that kind of whitewashing to happen. But one of the things, um, Robin Kelly, that Danny Glover um, made fast forwarding a, a, a bit to today, he because we were talking about freedom. We all know we're not free, Robin. <laughs> you know, we still, it's a daily work, right? Um, so 
the he he said that it really can't happen without systemic change. That's really a, a, a big debate because there are some people who who do have the view, well, you know, if we just get a little education, of course all of that is important. We just get our piece of the pie, everything is gonna be all right. But is it gonna be all right? I mean, look at what's happening with the environment, with uh, what's going on in the global south. I mean your thoughts on the relationship then with freedom and what Danny was talking about in terms of systemic change, Robin Kelly. Danny is absolutely right, as always, and that is that you can't, we can't move forward by simply celebrating and recognizing the end of slavery as if they're not other forms of unfreedom that we're dealing with today. Um, what we're seeing, at least in the last 40 years, is the greatest uh, uh, expansion of inequality that we've seen since the 1890s, basically. We've, we're, we're seeing immense poverty in this really wealthy country, more billionaires than ever, and it is also racial. And like Danny says, race and class are not separate entities. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate the struggle for, um, for systemic change is to see how Juneteenth has actually been used over the, in the 20th century. I mean, the Poor People's Campaign in 1968 held its own Juneteenth Solidarity Rally, uh, which attracted like 60,000 people. And the Poor People's Campaign in 68, when King and Reverend Ralph Abernathy and others were involved, they were making a demand, demand to for massive expenditure to end poverty for all people, poor white people, indigenous people, um, black people, uh, that next. The other thing is that in 1998, 30 years later, the Black Radical Congress, which is a, a black left formation calling for socialist change, calling for an end to racism, an end to patriarchy, they held their founding meeting on Juneteenth on purpose as a way, again, to celebrate uh, the Day of Jubilee. Um, in 2001, there was a Juneteenth celebration in North Carolina organized by who? By the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, Black Workers for Justice, and United Electrical Workers to celebrate the unity of black and Latino workers to form a new movement for social justice in the South. And so the emphasis and orientation on working class fighting to, to if not end capitalism, at least alter it so that you don't produce such great inequality and poverty and just is important. And one thing I would add to that, as we think really hard about what the systemic change might look like, we've got to think hard about indigenous peoples. Um, as Barbara uh, said, Oklahoma was one of the last places, was the last place, where the question of emancipation, it's not that people didn't know, but was that it really wasn't brought up in a robust way, in part because you had the existence of other forms of slavery, uh, the so-called five civilized tribes, uh, some own slave, Cherokee, you know, and emancipation in Oklahoma took on a slightly different valence because of that. But part of what Oklahoma represents for all of us is ground zero for the Trail of Tears, for the dispossession of Native Americans. And if we're going to talk seriously about structural change, we've got to think about how to restore sovereignty back to indigenous nations. Uh, because I, I, for one, would much rather live uh, in, in a society and by water protectors than by uh, militarism. 
you know, just <laughs> that's my choice. Um, but we have to think really hard about how to restore harmony to this earth as we think about things like reparations in repair, because we can't do that. That that's part of the structural change that's demanded of, of, of us right now. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned what you did about indigenous lands and, and the water protectors, because the reality is, is that one of the um, impediments uh, to freedom uh, for black people, but likely for all of us now, is the environmental crisis, the environmental racism that's going on in, in Cancer Alley, in um, inner cities across the nation on indigenous lands, where so much of the mining and the, the rare earth minerals uh, need needed are on indigenous lands and also the exploitation that happens on the continent in places like the Congo with cobalt and, and the rest of it needed uranium needed uh, for weapons, for cell phones, for television, etc. And I, I can't believe it. Just looking at the clock, Robin, we need, we, we need like a whole course with you right um, uh, here. But just as we are, are wrapping up, your uh, thoughts on that and also on the call for a third reconstruction, which the Poor People's Campaign is calling for. Uh, and I wonder your your thoughts on that, because we can see the, the, the racist threat of policing in, in the U.S., the, the slave patrols, the Fugitive Slave Act, all of that, we can draw a direct line to the, the, the killing of, of George Floyd that the whole world saw, or the killing of, of black women in South Central L.A. by serial murders that nobody really gives a damn about, that kind of devaluation of human life. If you don't value a, a life, then it's okay to take a life. Um, just on this, as we mark Juneteenth, Robin Kelly, give us your final thoughts here on all this. Right. Well, the third, the third reconstruction that we need, and I think the one that um, Reverend Barber and others are calling for, will be the most radical reconstruction, because it's not simply... Uh, reform. It's not simply fixing a system. It's basically abolishing it and replacing it with something else. So we need a reconstruction that abolishes state violence, that abolishes the police as we know it, that abolishes prison, that abolishes um, any, uh, uh, that creates institutions that protect everyone. Because, of course, as you know better than anyone, uh, women, black women, women of color in particular, are being killed at a much greater rate than the police are killing us. And so that's, that's, right. that's a state of emergency. This is part of, of creating new alternative institutions. And we also got to think about the abolition of private property, as we know it, the abolition of privatization, of the way in which people get pushed off of, of lands and having access, the abolition of super expensive education and free tuition for all. But then the final thing I would think about this, is, and I've just kind of touched the surface, is when we think about abolitionist politics and third reconstruction, our, our reconstruction can't be national. It must be global. You hit the nail on the head when you talked about the environment. This, this climate catastrophe is not limited to Turtle Island. You know, it's, it's a global one, and one that requires, going back to Leviticus again, the abolition of all debt, the abolition of all third world debt, all global south debt, the creation of institutions that could, uh, where we have a kind of global uh, structure to defend and protect this environment and reverse 500 years of, of colonial uh, rule 
in capitalism. That's what we need. And that's, I think, the vision of reconstruction that, that could save us. And if we don't go that far, uh, we're doomed again. We're going to end up where we were in 1890. Right. Well, on that note, um, Robin Kelly, we're so always so glad when we could uh, manage to get you on and, and really break all of this down uh, for us. Thank you so very much for joining us. And sadly, we are out of time, but we really appreciate you and your work. Thank you, Robin Thank Kelly. You.